Hello, listeners. My name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. Can one person actually love two people at the same time? What do you think? To all who are married out there, if your spouse came up to you one day and told you that they were in love with someone else, what would you do? To the ones that are not married yet, if your boyfriend or girlfriend came up to you and said the same thing, what would go through your mind? I'm sure that most of you will say that it's not acceptable. You will say that it is not possible for one person to love two people. Of course, I agree with that as well. But it seems like the world that we live in today is becoming more acceptable with that idea. The young people of today already used the idea of having someone to marry and someone to just date. I even had a close friend that was dating two men up until she ended up marrying one of them. She had a man that she was supposed to marry and a guy that she just dated. Isn't it surprising that it is seen as so normal today? I was even more shocked by the reaction of the people around this friend. They didn't tell her that her actions were wrong. On the contrary, they told her that she was being smart or that she knew how the dating world works. These kinds of responses surprised me very much. Then, I decided to think hard about why people would think and respond this way. What would lead them to think this way? My friend explained to me her reasons for behaving this way. She said that the man that she married isn't exciting or fun when it comes to dating, but has a secure job and is able to provide her with a comfortable life. The guy that she was dating was charming, fun, understanding, and really good to her, but didn't have a set future. If you listen to what my friend was saying, it really didn't seem wrong. But it made me sad to see that there was no love holding her marriage together. She married this person only looking at her needs and her comfort in the future. If it was a true marriage with true love, instead of looking at materialistic things and a comfortable future, shouldn't you pick the person that you are most in love with and let the other person go? There are times that I see people acting similarly in their life of faith as my friend acted in her dating life. Remember the way my friend just dated one guy because he was great to date but had no future and married another because he had a set future even though he wasn't exciting to date? This is similar to how people are not able to let go of worldly things because they are so exciting and fun. But... Realizing that those things do not give you eternal life, they turn to Jesus, wanting a relationship with Him, after they're done with the worldly things. When people live their lives of faith this way, they are headed to heaven, but it seems like they still have the longing for all the worldly and secular things that they left behind. Do any of you have these kinds of feelings in your Christian life? I used to be jealous of the people that lived their life doing all that they wanted and came to know Jesus right before their death. I had a foolish thought that I could live my life that way. But I found out that I was not the only one thinking these thoughts. I have heard so many people say that they could live their lives doing anything that they wanted and repent their sins and come to know Jesus right before their death. What do you think about this? Christ is my reward And all of my devotion Now there's nothing in this world That could ever satisfy Through
to follow Jesus No turning back No turning back I have decided To follow Jesus No turning back No turning back The cross before Next is sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Pray, Part 1, based on Matthew chapter 6. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, to open it up with me to Matthew chapter 6. So, I mentioned reading through the Bible. If you, if you were not here last week or in December, or maybe you're just visiting with us tonight, we have begun a process as a faith family of reading through the Bible together. Over the next two years, we'll cover the Old Testament once and New Testament and Psalms twice, Lord willing. Um... And so you'll look at the top of the notes, you'll see Genesis 6 through 13 and Matthew chapter 6 through 12. Those are the chapters we've read this last week, about two chapters, approximately two chapters a week. And so if you've, if you've not been reading along with us, I mean, I encourage you, if you're a member of this faith family, to jump in. It's not, obviously not too late, it's never too late to jump in reading the word. And every week we're going we're gonna to look back either to a specific text or broader picture that we've read through that last week that hopefully, if, even if you've not read, you'll be able to catch on, but it will certainly help if you've read. But as I was reading through these chapters this last week, asking the question, what is the Lord saying to us? It seemed like so many of these texts we were reading dealt with prayer. And the foundational text on prayer in Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus teaches us the Lord's Prayer, that many people no, wrote by heart. And then right after that, Matthew chapter 7, ask and will be given you, seek and you'll find, knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives, who seeks finds, and knocks the door will be opened. And but then even back in the Old Testament, pictures of Noah walking with God and Abraham walking with God and communing with God. And in the middle of all this, both Old Testament and New Testament, just graphic, glorious pictures of the character of the God to whom we are praying. And as I'm reading this, just 
believe the Lord is, I know the Lord is calling us to be a praying people. And I want to shepherd us to be a praying people. For our faith family, the church, because we are praying people, not so we can say we're a praying people, but so we know God. So we love God. And so I, I started thinking, I need to put all these texts together, these truths that we see in these texts, and to a sermon on prayer. And so that's the direction I was headed in. But the more I prayed, and the more I considered this time today, the more I thought, I, I don't know. I don't know if our greatest need is new information on prayer as much as our, our greater need is to pray and to help one another think through prayer in each one of our lives on a daily basis. So, so think about it. What did prayer look like in your life this past week? Think about that. What did prayer look like in your life this past week? Was it, you said it was a healthy picture. And my hope is that as a result of our meeting with God tonight and the work of His Spirit here, that your prayer life this next week will look different than it did last week in, in, in a lot of really good ways. So what I've done in your notes there is just put a simple acrostic, pray. It's an acrostic that uh, we mentioned in the simple guide to uh, personal worship that I gave you last week. And just a reminder, a Bible reading plan is here in your worship guide. You can download it at brookhills.org. You can get copies of the whole uh, couple years uh, out there in the lobby. Just ask anybody at one of those tables for one. You can download that. And the simple guide to personal worship, just a guide to time alone with God that you can download online. But part of that, use this acrostic prayer. And I mentioned that I wanted to unpack different parts of that, that guide. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to just introduce you just to a simple tool that I hope may help serve you when it comes to your time with God in prayer on a daily basis basis. And I want to show you how daily reading the Bible informs and compels and transforms that kind of time in prayer. All to the end that hopefully you're led to to pray. So I want us to see some truths in God's Word. And then along the way, I want to share some personal things that I do in my own prayer time that, that I hope might encourage you in your time with the Lord. Not that you need to do exactly what I do, but, but hopefully it's just to help you think through practically some some ways to, 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 to pray in your life on a daily basis. So we read this last week. You're in Matthew chapter 6. We read this last week where Jesus said, verse 6, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, I mentioned last week, that one practice will utterly revolutionize your life. It will. I promise. You set aside a time, you set aside a place to meet alone with God. It will, it will change your life. You, you will experience, Jesus promised, you'll experience great reward. And I am zealous for every single person in this room to experience that reward. I'm just putting the cards on the table from the start. I am zealous for you to experience the reward that God has for you in a room alone with him on a daily basis. I'm zealous for you to experience that. And you know, it's interesting. You read the two verses right after that. Verse 7, Jesus says, And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Now you read that. You might be tempted to think, uh, okay, then what's the point of prayer? I mean, if God already knows what we need, then why do I need to go in a room and tell Him? This is where we realize that Jesus is, is showing us here that Maybe there's a deeper purpose to prayer than just giving God a a list of things and informing God 
of, maybe God is not up in heaven with a steno pad and a pen like writing down your list and saying, oh, that's a good one. Or, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Yes. Maybe there's something deeper here for us in prayer. That's what I'm zealous for you to experience. Deeper than giving information to God, what if prayer is designed to experience intimacy with, with God? So obviously we're not, it's, it's tough to talk about, all right, what happens when you're in a room alone with the Lord when you're in a room with a thousand other people? But my hope is that as we walk through this acrostic and, and do some different things along the way, that you'll be able to apply, to transfer what we dive into tonight into your time alone. That you'll get a glimpse all together tonight of the reward that God has designed for you alone with him tomorrow morning. So let's, let's start with the first letter. Again, all this is really simple. But the P stands for praise. Praise. Worship God for who he is. So it is, it's good in prayer to start by fixing your attention and your affection on the God whom you're praying to. If we're not careful, we can just kind of jump in. Dear God, okay, what do I need to pray for? And you're not even thinking about who you're talking to. So pause and think about who you're talking to. And the word helps us in this. So George Mueller, a giant in a sense in prayer and Christian history, once said, when I used to rise from bed, I would begin to pray as soon as possible. But I often spent a quarter of an hour to an hour on my knees struggling to pray while my mind wandered. Has that ever happened to you? Your mind just wandering? Mueller said, now I rarely have this problem. And here's why not. As my heart is nourished by the truth of the word, I'm brought into true fellowship with God. I speak to my father and to my friend, capital F, friend, although I am unworthy about the things that he has brought before me in his precious word. So this is why my, my time with the Lord starts with an open Bible. And I'll, I'll, I'll pray, ask God to help me to know him more, his spirit to lead my time with him. And then I'll just begin to read. And so as, as I was reading the word this last week, just a couple of chapters a day, every day I was overwhelmed by the greatness of God revealed in these texts that we were reading. And you're sitting there and you're reading in Genesis about God in his holy and just wrath bringing a flood over the entire earth. Like all the earth, he floods. So you're reading that. I'm reading that in my little tiny office at my house. I'm reading that in my little tiny office. I'm reading this and it hits me. The God who flooded the earth in just and holy wrath. This God is with me in the office. Take your breath away when you really stop to think about it. Doesn't it? We've got to let the word remind us who, who God is is so here's what i want to do so a little audience participation tonight again i hope in a way to help you realize you can you can do this so we've got eight chapters in genesis that we read this last week and seven chapters in matthew that we read this last week all of them filled with truth about who god is so what i want you to do over the next few minutes you got some space under that that section that prays worship god for who he is what i want you to do and you can do this alone if you want or you can turn to the person or a couple people beside you and you can do this with a couple of others. What I want you to do over the next few minutes, I want you to take these passages. So anywhere between Genesis 6 and 13 and Matthew 6 and 12, take these passages, browse through them. Now this will be easier if you've read the word this last week, but even if you've not, you'll be able to pick up. So read through these passages and just write down attributes of God that you see in these passages along with the, the places where you see them. So you might write, just simple, God is, fill in the blank, 
and then write the, where the verse is found. So God is holy, Genesis, whatever. Or it might even be more specific in the New Testament. I mean, Jesus is holy, Matthew, whatever. So, so just write down. So you got space in there. Again, you can do this alone. You can get a couple people around you, uh, one or two people around you to do this with. That's fine. But write down. So, so write down characteristics, attributes of God, verses where they're found, and do that for the next few minutes, and then we're going to take audience participation up uh, one more notch. So, all right, go. Writing down different attributes of God and the verses where they're found. You don't have to write out the whole verse. Just write out where, where they're found. Go for it. All right, finish kind of getting the last one that you're, you're looking at. And then, so here's what I want us to do. I want us just to, in a sense, pause and think about in these chapters, what do we learn about who God is, who Christ is, who Jesus is? And so this is where the audience participation is going to kind of go up to a whole other level. So there's a microphone here at the front and here at the front, and then two microphones in the middle. And so what I want to invite you to do is just people from all around the room to go to these microphones and just, just we're going to go one after another after another and just say, God is, or Jesus is, fill in the blank, just quick, and then where the verse is found. You don't have to read through the verse. So God is holy, Genesis, wherever. And we'll go on to the next one. And maybe in that space, you've written down some, write down some of these others, and let's just, let's just think about who God has revealed himself to be in, in these verses. And so... Go to those mics. Now, the thing with open mic time, like when we're not just reading the Bible, so I will reserve the right if, if you say something God is not to say, no, he's not that. So, um, so I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, but I don't want that to discourage you. Like don't let the thought of being rebuked by a pastor in front of a thousand people be discouraging to you. So be sure God is what you're saying he is. That's, that's all I'm after. Okay, so all right. Start going to the microphones. And just start lining up there. When you get there, just line up. We're going to go from one. We're going to kind of go around. So just, just go to a microphone and start. That's perfect. Go over there, there, and start, start moving to them. And I'll just, I'll just kind of point to each microphone when it's, when it's time. All right, go for it. Okay, God is our Father, Matthew 6, 9. Amen. He's our provider in Matthew uh, 6, 11, and 32. Hmm. And he knows the needs, and he provides good gifts in 7, 21. Amen. Amen. Jesus is a disciple caller, Matthew mm. four eighteen. Hmm. Amen. Matthew six twenty six feeds the birds. He feeds the birds. Amen. He does. In Genesis nine six, God is a creator. Hmm. Um, Genesis twelve one, God loves all nations. Loves the nations. It's good. God is compassionate, Matthew ten thirty six. Amen. Right there. From, from Genesis 11, God is in control. Hmm. Go for it. Excuse me, Genesis 6, 14, uh, God's a rescuer. Uh, hmm. Make yourself an ark. Hmm. That's good. He is a hero, um, Matthew 26, 27, and verse 8. Hmm. I mean, um, chapter 8. Thanks, buddy. All right. Uh, Matthew 9, 35, Jesus is a healer. Hmm. Um, to go with that, he is willing, Matthew 8, 3. Mm, amen. The Lord grieves, Genesis 6, 6. Mm. Come on, a few more. He is patient, Genesis 13, 13. Amen. Go for it. God is merciful, Genesis 6, 8. Mm. Right there. God gives second chances, um, Genesis 9, 1. Amen. God is trusting, Genesis 9, 2, and 3. Hmm. Um, Jesus is able, Matthew 9, 28. Hmm. Amen. God cares about us being in relationships, Genesis 2, 18. Hmm. Amen. God is holy, uh, Genesis 6. Hmm. I mean, these are just a few chapters we've read this week, and we've seen all these things about who God is. And you think about it, this is who you're meeting with in a room alone with the creator of all things, all the nations, who's in control of all things, the one who's able to heal. 
He's compassionate, merciful, able, sufficient, covenant maker, holy, provider, provider for the birds. He's, he, he's all these things, and you're meeting alone with him. Like, there's just moments where you're reading. Just, and, and we're obviously looking at 15 chapters, but just one of these chapters, and you stop, and you think about what it's saying about God, and you realize like I was saying, when, you, when you're reading about the flood and you, you realize this is who you're meeting with, it's one of those moments where I just will find myself just in awe of the God I'm meeting with and I'm praying to and I'm reading His Word and it just, it brings you to your knees and it's good, it's good to physically get on your knees, to move to your knees in that room alone. Not that you have to, but it certainly seems appropriate sometimes, doesn't it? I find myself just writing these things out and then drawn to my knees in silence and praise. Sometimes I just want to sing. I don't sing well, so I'll pull up iTunes song that exalts God and turn it up and belt it out. So this is the word of God incites and ignites the worship of God. It's the way it works. And so, so here's what I want to do. Again, it's tough. We're, we're not in a room alone. We, but, but hey, one, we don't have to go to iTunes. We got some guys who can come out right now. And so what I want to do, I want to invite you to stand with me. I want you to think about the, the picture of God that we have seen this week in the Word, even just if you've not read any, tonight in the Word. So with your attention, your affection on Him, I'm, I'm saying you stand if you want to. You can get on your knees. Like, let's, let's, let's worship Him. Let's praise Him for who He is. A microcosm of what we do in our time alone with the Lord, let's, let's do together in this room before, before this, this God. The beauty of when we're reading his word is this, this is what God's faithfulness is all about. What he has been, he forever will be. These are the things he is. The God we're meeting with tonight, he is. So let's give him praise and glory, honor. I just feel like singing more and more and more. And that's, this is why, this is why we need unhurried time with the Lord. Like if you, if you just, okay, five minutes, it's not, I mean, you've got to go to work at some point, I realize, we've got to go to work, but set aside time to be with God in which he can direct you and lead you and guide you in ways that you didn't expect when you, when you started. So we start with, with praise. Now praise automatically always, in a sense, leads to repentance. So that's what the R stands for, repent. Repent. Confess your sin to God and acknowledge your need for Jesus. So you see who God is and then you, you've got a much clearer picture of who you are and why you need Christ. You, th- you think about what we've read the last week. You, you read the story of the flood as God's judgment against sin in the world and immediately you you start to think about sin in your life, sins in your life. You think about gossip that's so commonplace to you that it's, it warrants the holy wrath of God. How serious it is. And anger and lust and materialism and these things that we just say, oh, it's not, not that bad. It could be worse. Like, it's, it's bad. You see sin before God. You, you read in Genesis 11 about the Tower of Babel, and you see, we see our, our concern for our name. I see, I'm reading Genesis 11, I see my concern for my name. It's like a mirror. How concerned I am about what others think about my name. You read in Genesis 12 where Abraham immediately obeys God. And you realize, I don't, I don't, I don't trust God like that. I don't obey God like that. He, he says to do this and I, I put it off. And in the New Testament, when you're, you're reading about Jesus and saying about prayer and you, 
you think, I, oh, I'm prayerless. Or you hear what he says about fasting, this expectation that we fast, and you think, I've never fasted. I don't fast regularly. You read what he says about giving, and you, and you think, oh, I'm storing up so many treasures on earth and so little treasures in heaven. End of Matthew 6, Jesus says, don't worry about anything. And you realize, I worry about so many things. So you realize the point is not to get to the end of the chapter and check off a box, right? The point is to see God, to see ourselves, and to repent. And so this is where, and again, we, I mentioned this in the, the guide to a, personal, a simple guide to personal worship, but to have something to write with, something to write on, or use your computer. I use my computer, so I'm writing out, God, I, I write out prayers. Just, God, I praise you for this or that that I see, and then I, I'll start to write these prayers of, of repentance to God. And so this is, this, is a, this is just a running, you know, I've got this document that I've got on my computer that just, okay, date, and I walk through. So it's not, don't think like, dear diary kind of thing. No, this is, this is, your communion with God, that I, as he speaks and you respond, you're, you're putting that down. And so this is where I want to encourage us to do a little audience participation again. But, but I want you to realize why, why we would. Because in just a second, I want, I want to encourage you to write out, and in that area under repentance, I want to encourage you to write out a prayer of repentance, specific things in your life that you need to repent of, turn from. Things in yourself, sin, you need to turn from. And this is not gonna be a group exercise. This is gonna be just you, between you and the Lord. And You don't look at the person next to you. If you do, you'll have to write extra on yours that you need to repent of, so don't do that. Just create more work for you. Uh, and, and we're not going to do open mic time either, so don't, don't worry about that. There is a place in the church for confession of our sin to one another, but uh, the place is not necessarily open mic in front of a thousand people. So, so we're going to write it. But here's why we do this. Some people would think, well, that's, that's depressing to dwell on your sin or write out specific ways you've sinned against God. But oh, this is not depressing for reasons we've seen in what we've read, especially in the New Testament. And Jesus told us that prayer involves confession of sin, asking for forgiveness of our sins. And then look over in Matthew chapter 9. Do you remember what we read there? Matthew chapter 9, first story in that chapter. Getting into a boat, he crossed over, came to his own city. So Matthew chapter 9, verse 2. Behold, some people brought to Jesus a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk? But you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The whole point of this miracle is plain. Jesus wants us to know that he has authority to forgive our sins. What we've already read in Matthew chapter 1, 21, this is, this is the purpose for which he came. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this is why it's not depressing to confess sin, repent before God, because you're confessing sin to the God who, number one, knows all things, sees all things. It's, it's, you're a fool to try to hide anything from God in the first place. A fool. But even deeper than that, why would you want to hide sins from the God who has sent his son to forgive you of your sins, to cover over sins, to wipe them away? This is glorious, not depressing, it's glorious. And so, so non-Christian friend who's here tonight, and you're thinking, what if I just come in this Bible exercise and, and microphones and I, I just want to leave. Just, my hope is, that you're being here tonight, I'm, I'm, I'm trusting you're being here tonight is not an accident. And my hope is that you will, you will see that the God who created the universe, who is holy and 
just loves you. program called The Good News of the Gospel. Hello listeners, my name is Youngin Winston, and you are now listening to our program, The Goodness of the Gospel. Hello everyone, my name is Brian Winston. Last week, we talked about salvation, redemption, and redeeming. The one who can even out the sin which entered the world through one man's disobedience. That was the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Today we want to study why Jesus came to earth and what meanings lie in his work on earth. Last time, I believe we spoke briefly about the kinsman redeemer. Yes, as we looked into Boaz in the book of Luth, we talk about kinsman redeemer. Kinsman means those who were related by blood and redeemer is the one who restores. So, we can understand that kinsman redeemer is a relative who restores. Exactly. Kinsman redeemer is the one who restores what has been taken away. In the Bible, there are many figures who foreshadow Jesus Christ. There is no one in the Bible who can substitute the Messiah, Jesus. However, there are many individuals who have the foreshadow of Jesus. Joseph, who was sold by his brothers as a slave to Egypt, was the shadow of Jesus. We can find many foreshadowing of Jesus through his life, but he was not the Messiah. Moses and David also had the shadow of the Messiah. Boaz, who we just talked about, was also the shadow of the Messiah. I think I spoke about this earlier in this program, that kinsman redeemer, like this Boaz, must meet three requirements. I remember First, as we can guess by the title, the individual has to be a relative. Yes, the relationship has to be made by the blood. If they are not blood-related, then the individual is not qualified. And do you remember the second requirement? Second is, the kinsman should have wealth and power. Good. An individual has to have wealth and power. Not only has to be related by blood, but an individual has to be able to restore back what was lost. There were many things kinsmen redeemers were required to do. They have to free their relatives from slavery by buying them back. 
and they have to buy back the possession, especially the land which the relatives lost. And if the relatives were killed unfairly or disabled, then the kinsmen should avenge for them. The Hebrew word for kinsman, redeemer, is goel, and this system is called the goel system. The task of a goel is to free their relatives from slavery, restore back their position, and to avenge. So, if the relative does not have wealth or power, then that individual is not qualified for goel, right? Yes, you're right. The person is not qualified to be the goel. However, even though goel is a relative, I don't think it was easy to be a goel. They had to spend their money to buy back their relatives' freedom, possession, and to avenge for their relatives might have put them in danger. It doesn't seem to be the job for everyone. Yes, those who are not generous cannot be a goel. If an individual does not have a sincere heart, then he couldn't become a goel. That is why the third qualification to be a goel is to volunteer. I remember in the book of Luth, there was a relative who had the priority to be a goel before Boaz. Yes, you're right. There was a person who had priority to be Goel before Boaz. His duty was to take Ruth as his wife so that the name of his relative would not be cut off from Israel. But he did not volunteer for the job because he was in fear of any harm to him. A kinsman redeemer, Goel must be a relative, have wealth and power, and a willing heart to volunteer. And Boaz undertook this task. Just as I mentioned before, Boaz was the shadow of the Messiah. He had the image of a Jesus. Jesus, although the God and Creator Himself, came on earth in human form to be our relative. He satisfied the first requirement to be a Goel, and Almighty Omniscient Jesus had an ability to restore our possessions, which was the second requirement. He paid the price for our sin with His blood to free us from the slavery of sin and to bring back our right which was taken away, and he was able to avenge our enemy who took our lives. And most of all, he volunteered for this job. He satisfied the third requirement to be a goel. Jesus satisfied all the requirements to be the goel. For that purpose, he came in flesh, lived without sin, and volunteered to bear the cross. Now let us take a look into detail what Jesus had done. We know why Jesus came in human form by the requirements of a goel. So that he can be our blood relative. And there's one more reason. Let us think about the salvation we talked about last time. Salvation is to change back to zero of what became negative by sin. Through whom did the sin enter the world? Through human Adam and Eve. Yes, sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and often the Bible describes these two individuals as one. In Genesis chapter 2, man and woman became one flesh. A husband and wife is one. That is why the Bible often tells us that sin entered the world by one man. Would you please read from Romans chapter 5 verse 12, one of the more famous verses. Therefore, just as through one man's sin enter into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. Yes, just as you mentioned, it is written that through one man's sin enter the world, and also the death. Now would you please read from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. This also says, by a man the death came. Yes, the Bible tells us sin and death enter the world through one man. Therefore the world needed one man to make what was a negative into a positive. That must be Jesus Christ. That is correct. He came in human form. The Bible calls him the second Adam. 
The second Adam, who was different from the first man, Adam. Do you remember what Jesus first did after he was baptized and began to live his public life? He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness after he was baptized. Yes, as Jesus was beginning his public life, he was tempted by Satan. That was the beginning of his work to make positive of what was a negative. To be tempted by Satan is the beginning of his work of making positive of what became negative? Can you explain that a little more? Sure. The place where sin entered into the world was the Garden of Eden, right? Yes. The Garden of Eden was a perfect place. Everything was abundant. In the midst of such perfect and abundant environment, first man, Adam, did not keep God's commandment. The second Adam, Jesus, began by correcting this. Would you read from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. The second Adam, Jesus, was in the situation that was completely opposite of the first Adam. You're right. Let's take a look. Satan came to the first Adam where he had everything in plenty. However, Jesus went into the wilderness where Satan was. It wasn't the Satan who came to Jesus, but Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit to him. The book of Matthew, Mark, and Luke commonly wrote that he was led by the Holy Spirit. Then, should we understand this passage as a God's plan and intention? Yes, God started his work of redemption, and he began by reversing what the first man, Adam, had done. The Satan came and tempted the first Adam in his abundance and led him to sin. But Jesus, who had fasted for 40 days, was led to the Satan and revealed his righteousness. The Bible writes the three temptations Jesus had. Yes, to make a stone into bread, to jump from the holy temple and worship the Satan. Nicely done. Then why would the Bible record these temptations? Do you remember the scene where Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3? What was Eve's reason to reach out and eat the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? It looked good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable to gain wisdom. Yes, she ate it because it looked good for food, pleasing to the eye and desirable to gain wisdom. These were the three reasons why Eve ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Is there any relations with the temptations Jesus had? Yes, there is. In order to make positive of what became negative, Jesus began by correcting what Adam and Eve had failed to do. So the three temptations Eve had and the three temptations Jesus had are related? Yes. Would you please read from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15? For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. The Bible says the high priest, Jesus Christ, was equally tempted like us. How was he? Jesus was never married. He wouldn't have been tempted to cheat. There was no such thing as obscene videos, and he wouldn't have been tempted to watch such things. He was a neighbor in school, so he wouldn't have been tempted to cheat on the test. Or he wouldn't have wanted to go to clubs. Yes, but the Bible says even though all sin looks different, they all can be concluded into three basics. Let us look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Would you read that for us? For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. The Bible tells us that all that is in the world is not from the Father, but from the world, which are the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Temptation of every sin is concluded into these three categories. 
Now I will explain to you how these are related to the three temptations Jesus had and the three temptations Eve had. First, Eve thought the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was good for food, and one of the temptations Jesus had was to make stone into bread. Apostle John says this is the lust of the flesh in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. It is to satisfy what our flesh desires. The greed Eve wanted to satisfy was the lust of flesh. Right. Second, the fruit looked pleasing to the eye. This is the lust of the eyes. It is the greed of wanting to possess what is good to the eye. One of the temptations Jesus had was that Satan took Jesus to a very high mountain, showing him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor, and he told Jesus to worship him in order that he would receive them. Temptation of the eye, pleasing to the eye, it is the lust of the eyes. Yes. Lastly, the fruit looked desirable for gaining wisdom. One of the temptations Jesus had was to jump from the holy temple. What did Satan tell Jesus? And just will lift him in their hands so that his feet will not hit against the stone. That's right. The Satan tempted Jesus by saying that if Jesus jumped from the holy temple and the angels lifted Jesus, all the people who saw that will recognize Jesus as the Son of God then Jesus would have been praised by many people, and that would have made him proud. It is the boastful pride of life, written in 1 John chapter 2, 16. This pride is over self-confidence, boasting, and arrogance. Didn't Eve eat the fruits so that she would become like a god, knowing the good and the evil? Sitting herself in the seat of a pride? Yes, she was proud to seat herself in the seat of Creator rather than staying at her place of creature. The three temptations Jesus had was to restore back what the first man, Adam, failed at. Through these three temptations, Jesus had every temptation we humans can have. And by those temptations, He revealed His perfect righteousness by not sinning and fully following the word of God. Against the failure of the first man, he showed perfect success. I can see God's perfectness to restore back from the place where failure happened. Now let's sum up what we have talked about today. God sent his son as the second Adam to amend from the place where the first Adam failed at. Yes, Jesus was led to the tempter in midst of what was scarce. He was firm in obeying the word of God, opposite from the first man who fell into temptation from where everything was abundant and plentiful. Jesus came to the world to start restoration. He did not come as a mere sacrifice, but as the Goel and as the second Adam. He lived as Goel, lived righteous life, as the second man and became the sacrifice, shedding his blood. Yes. Next time, let us study the meanings of what Jesus did on earth. I hope that we all can live resembling Jesus' righteousness who proved his righteousness from the temptation that was a taking for us. I will see you next time. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.
if person A was enjoying dating person B, but decided to marry person C because of a secure retirement, then we would condemn that person for that decision. We will say that person A is wrong and that person C should not marry person A. But we all have the characteristics of person A inside of us. If you realize that you have the qualities of person A inside of you, you must carefully rethink all of this. Not going to hell should not be our only reason for choosing to believe in Jesus. If you choose to believe in Jesus solely because you do not want to go to hell, then you came to your decision in the wrong way. The reason we believe in Jesus is because He is our Creator and He died on the cross for all who sinned in order to forgive our sins. He showed us how much He loved us all through all of this. This is how we came to love Jesus Christ. We love Jesus Christ because He first loved us so much. We should marry a person only if we truly love that person. The reason why we believe and go to Jesus is because we truly love Him. A person cannot and should not love two people. If a person loves one person, they should be able to let go of the other. They must forget about all the past and all the feelings that they had for that person. This is the duty that we have to the person that we truly love. When we choose to become a follower of Christ after realizing the love that He has for us, when we choose to walk the narrow path through the narrow doors, we must let go of all the things that we once loved in the world and the person that we were in the past. We must erase all the memories and our feelings from the past. Apostle Paul confessed in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, that all the things he considered valuable, he now considers worthless because of what Christ has done. It is worthless compared to the infinite value of knowing Jesus Christ. He discarded everything else so that he could gain Christ. This is the way we must worship and love Jesus Christ. I hope that you all take the time to take a look inside your hearts. Why are you walking in the life of faith? Is it because of love? Or is it because of your secure future? Take some time to reflect. This ends our Unity in Christ program for today. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week. And God bless. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be His than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame I'd rather be true to his holy 